Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I want to tell you about the Ringer's gambling podcast. It is called Against All Odds with Cousin Sal, and you're not going to believe this, but it is hosted by Cousin Sal, the biggest degenerate gambler that I know. He's such a degenerate. He has three other degenerates that he calls the degenerate trifecta. And they break down every conceivable gambling thing you would ever want to gamble on. They even take you to Captain Morgan's make-believe casino, where Sal makes up props on, on all kinds of things. Sports, pop culture, you name it. You are going to want to get your gambling advice from these guys. Cousin Sal, he's been a staple on the BS podcast for the last 10 years. So good that we gave him his own podcast. Check it out, Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Michael Baum, and his name is Ben Lindbergh. And Ben, I'm feeling weird right now. Why is that? Because we're about a month from the start of the playoffs, and I'm like, it's weird to be in a situation where the Dodgers are, even in spite of their late, late losing streak, probably heavy favorites, but I'm really excited to see like five or six different teams in the playoffs. Like, I'm feeling good about the quality of play that we're going to get in October. Me too. Yeah. We talked about it on our most recent prop bets episode. There's a, a very good chance that we're going to see a team win the World Series that has not won a World Series in a long time. And we're also going to see some really good teams in the playoffs winning divisions. And it doesn't look like we're going to see any like excellent teams get snubbed out of terrible luck or anything like that. It seems like the teams that deserve to be there will probably be there. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be 10 teams in the playoffs and I don't know, they're seven really good teams right now Mm -hmm. you know i think i'm obviously excited for this kershaw hill darvish fronted dodgers rotation i think seeing chris sale in the playoffs is going to be fun i think the red sox offense has another gear that it hasn't showed this year and i think the their rotation has been a lot better than um than you'd probably think from listening to red sox fans uh cleveland is on a 14 game winning streak which Whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of games. Yeah. Whoa. That <laughs> kind of snuck up on me. I knew they were playing well, but I didn't know that we were starting to get into historic territory. Yeah. I was talking to Ryan O'Hanlon planning it out the you know what I'm going to be writing about the rest of the week. And they got the band back together from last year, except Lonnie Chisholm can hit now. And mm-hmm. uh, Jose Ramirez is even better, and they're going to go into the playoffs, you know, with a healthy uh, Danny Salazar, a healthy Carlos Carrasco, and Mike Clevenger is apparently he's got a one thirty three ERA plus or, or somewhere somewhere in the one thirties. <laughs> like this goofy replacement level swing man is pitching like a down ballot Cy Young candidate this year. It is wild. And I, I was talking about how they might catch Houston because the Astros are in you know, the media mood right now. It's like, well, they got a lot of holes and you know, you wonder what what's going to how they're going to shake out, uh, you know, who's going to be healthy, who's going to be pitching well. They just traded for mm-hmm. Justin Verlander. Lance McCullers came back, and as far as, you know, the game's not over as we record, they're pitching well, and they've won six in a row. So mm-hmm. this is going to be great. I'm I'm really <laughs> looking forward to, to October. Yeah, I mean, I came into the season expecting Cleveland to be maybe the best team in the league and certainly to just walk all over the rest of the AL Central. And that did not happen for the rest of the season. For most of the season, by the end here, I think it's probably going to look a lot more like we thought it would look a few months ago. They're up up 11 (laughs) games on Minnesota right now. Right. And that's the sort of lead I was expecting. And when someone looks at that five years from now and sees a double digit lead at the end of the season, it won't maybe perfectly reflect what it was like to follow the AL Central in 2017 when it was really close for most of the year. But this is where I I think people expected them to end up given the quality of the competition in that division and the quality of that team. Yeah, uh, and we didn't talk about Washington either. Washington's going to be a lot of fun this this postseason. I almost like this is one of those situations where you you know you feel like this is the year for 
half a dozen teams. And of course, this is all setting up for Minnesota to come out of the second wild card and for Jose Barrios to, you know, throw two complete game shutouts in the ALCS and and for the 83 win twins to knock off the 107 win Dodgers in the, uh, you know, and avenge the 1965 World Series. But um, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's very relevant Mm -hmm. to most of the players on those teams. I know they, they feel a deep grudge. Another thing that uh, we should talk about is the Diamondbacks just had a streak snapped uh, on Wednesday night where they had they had gone 98 innings without trailing. Yes, which <laughs> according to Elias was tied for the second longest such streak in Major League history. I guess it was actually 97 that they did it and the 98th it was broken and so that was only behind the 1942 Yankees who went 100 innings right so and they're tied with the 1947 Brooklyn Dodgers so we're talking 70 years here since we've seen this sort of dominance over that kind of stretch so yeah really that's pretty impressive I mean it wasn't baseball in 1947 right yeah not nearly in the same way yeah so I mean, we're seeing the Dodgers be terrible over this span. We're seeing the Diamondbacks be great. We're seeing the Indians perhaps be even better. And, you know, it doesn't mean all that much if you zoom into spans of 10, 15 games, whatever. You can find streaks where almost every team is amazing and almost every team is terrible. And I'm feeling pretty good about our pronouncement that the Dodgers were not going to challenge the all-time single seasons win mm-hmm. single season wins record because that has gotten a lot a lot less likely here but really there isn't a whole lot of cause for concern I, you could worry about or celebrate certain players on each team if you're a Dodgers fan maybe you're a little worried about Chris Taylor looking like who we thought Chris Taylor was before the season rather than who he actually was for most of the season and Maybe you're worried about Alex Wood, who hasn't looked great in the second half. Those are real concerns. But for the most part, this is the best team in baseball. And it was when they were winning every game. And it still is, even though they've lost more games in the last 10 days or so than they had lost in the two months or so before that. Yeah. What do you think about the I think the the narrative that's sort of going around there are two with this losing streak. One is that this happens to everybody, like every team mm-hmm. that that is on pace for 110 wins or whatever, um, you know, winds up going through one of these losing streaks. And so, I mean, one is just like it's randomness and you hope they break out of it before the start of the playoffs. Um, but the other one is that it's fatigue that, so I guess the, the underpinning of that is that playing well is more tiring than playing poorly. Um, (laughs) so I don't know if like they would be any more fatigued than anybody else, particularly considering how the Dodgers use, um, they've used the D uh, the 10 day DL to, um, lower innings counts and, and sort of keep guys fresh in a way that very few teams have been as successful as, as they have in doing that. So I don't know if Mm -hmm. I buy the, the fatigue argument necessarily. Yeah, no, neither do I. I think it's randomness more than anything else. And you can get irrationally positive about a team based on a short streak of performance. You can also get rationally down on a team. It's always better in baseball to zoom out and look at the larger sample. And I I think that's the case here too, which doesn't mean you can't enjoy it or really hate it if you are a fan of one of these teams that's having an extreme performance. But we know from previous research that what you do at the end of the season doesn't really tell you a whole lot about what you're going to do in the playoffs. Your full season performance might tell you something, although not all that much because of baseball's playoff format. But there have been a lot of teams that have backed into the playoffs and have been great or have come into the playoffs hot and have been knocked out immediately. So I just don't make too much of it. You can fret about individual players who have contributed to that streak, but on the whole, I wouldn't make too much of it. Yeah. One thing that just going back to the Diamondbacks real quick, somebody uh, on Twitter asked me earlier this week who I'd start in the wildcard game or who I thought the Diamondbacks would start because (laughs) I I think it's just time to talk about how good Robbie Ray's been this year Mm -hmm. if we haven't done that already. Uh, Because, I mean, it's a a legitimate argument at this point. He's got 
broadly speaking, better numbers than Zach Greinke and everything, except for walks. And I think that, you know, if it comes down to it and their rotation is set up in such a way that uh, Tori Lavallo has a, a choice, he probably starts Greinke just because of the experience and because, I don't know, maybe Greinke would, res- you you sort of, you know, he's he's been in the playoffs before, you know that insofar as that experience thing matters, I, I think it's part deferring to the older guy, but also, you know, you, you, you're you relatively certain he's not going to uh, respond negatively to the pressure. Um, but it, just on in terms of, of performance, I think it's it might even tip Ray's way, um, particularly mm-hmm. in a one-game um, one game situation where if things go bad, you might be able to pull him a little bit earlier. But, I mean, it's this is every bit, you know, I... I wrote about their rotation sort of at its peak uh, before the Dodgers added Darvish and when Kershaw was sort of struggling a little bit. But, you know, in a in a best of five series, this is like you'd think that that having Kershaw, Darvish, Hill and then whoever of Maeda or Wood or McCarthy or or whoever the Dodgers send out there in the fourth spot would be a huge advantage. But I don't know that it is assuming Arizona uh, gets past the wildcard game. Yeah, that rotation is so deep. It's been one of the best in baseball. I think really every starter in the rotation has exceeded expectations or or met high expectations. I mean, the guy that caused the most concern maybe was Zach Godley, who took over for Shelby Miller, and he's been great. They haven't lost anything, mm-hmm. and if anything, maybe he's say, been better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Judging by, by the <laughs> right. Shelby Miller we've seen the past couple of seasons, they've gained a great yeah. deal. He was kind of on track, it looked like, maybe at the start of the season, but he can't have been better than this. And you're right about Ray, and he was a real cipher coming into this season because he was one of the guys with the biggest differences between his ERA and his defense independent stats because he struck out a ton Mm -hmm. of guys, but he had that high BABIP and a low strand rate and all of that, and it just wasn't clear which one he was. Was he the guy with the great FIP and XFIP and all of that, or was he the guy with the ERA of almost five? And this year, he has actually exceeded his peripherals and has the sub three ERA and has struck out even more guys and hasn't hasn't had any of the issues that plagued him last year. So he's been fantastic. And yeah, yeah. You can you can sort of draw comparisons to Gio Gonzalez in terms of guys who who uh, underperformed their peripherals by about a run last year and are now overperforming them by about a run. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of they're both lefties who probably walk more guys than than you would like, but Ray is the power version of that and Gonzalez is the finesse version of that. Um, Yeah, he's... If if I if I don't know maybe we should do this later at the end of the month we should do like a, a playoff breakout draft or something like that because I mm-hmm. you know he might have a, a fourteen strikeout game in the division series in him yeah right and J D Martinez of course has been a huge addition for them and now Goldschmidt is missing a little time with some nagging injury concerns and Martinez looks even more important in that lineup of course he has the four home run game to his credit now but he's been hitting ever since he came over in that trade that the Diamondbacks didn't surrender a whole lot in. Mm -hmm. So that is looking like a smart pickup as it did at the time, but it has worked out really well. And yeah, this team, I think relative to their preseason projections, I think Jeff Sullivan just wrote about this the other day. They are now the biggest overperformers of the season, topping the Brewers who were in that spot for a long time. But they do not look like a team that you expect to be much worse. They just look like a really solid team at this point. So they are kind of scary, even as the Rockies have threatened to maybe lose their grasp on the playoff spot, which I don't think they will, but they've made it interesting at least. And the Diamondbacks have made up a ton of ground on the Dodgers because their hot streak has coincided with the Dodgers slump. They've slashed like half of their lead apart, and it's still a double-digit <laughs> Not even, lead. Yeah, they've made up. They've made up nine games in their past ten, and they're still eleven yes. and a half. <laughs> yeah, I think the Dodgers' playoff odds were a hundred percent and are still a hundred percent. So ultimately, it's not going to matter at all. But it looks like less of a route than it it was looking before this. Oh, one one last thing before we get to to cheating, I, I want to talk to you <laughs> briefly about the. Um, Somebody, I think it was um, Robert Silverman called it Fengazi, which I think mm. is the the front runner right now for <laughs> yeah, for my good. scandal name. Um, it's 
it, uh, what the Astros are, are doing, picking up Justin Verlander, it is one of my favorite things in the stretch run. I know I've talked about this with a potential Darvish trade, but the the team, like it's Verlander is the first big name who's really come from outside the organization for a very, you know, it's Correa, Altuve, McCullers, Keuchel, all, all the big names, Springer are are very much homegrown players and they've sort of added veterans around the periphery. Even, you know, they Carlos Beltran's a, a future Hall of Famer, but he's he's barely a complimentary piece at this point. And Verlander mm-hmm. is like a big name who's gonna gonna pitch in big moments for them right now. And that is my like I love it when that happens. When the the and he, like the ideal version of this is Randy Johnson or David Price, where it's a yeah. rental and Verlander still got a few more years left on his contract, but that is just so cool. And I'm, I'm Ben, I'm so high on baseball. I'm tripping <laughs> wow. balls off my ass on baseball right now. This is infectious. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so much changed for both the Astros and Verlander in between the non-waiver deadline and the waiver deadline, because I know that a lot of people thought the Astros should have made a move for a starter earlier than they did, and including Dallas Keuchel. But Dallas Keuchel is one of the main reasons why they probably ended up making that move when they did, because he and McCullers looked a lot shakier than they did in July, and the Astros just had a rough month. They threatened to lose their lead on the AL's best record, and just things were looking a a lot shakier than they were when they decided not to do something at the deadline, the first deadline. And meanwhile, Verlander had a really strong month and looks more or less back to some approximation of his former self. And so he made himself much more tradable than he'd been. So I understood why they didn't make this kind of move the first time they had the opportunity, if they could have made some similar move then. But I think enough changed in one month that it made a ton of sense for them to do this. And you're right. It's just plain fun that Uh, they did. I thought it was a mistake when they didn't, and I I think they deserve a lot of credit for recti- for not only like finding a way to rectify that kind of mistake because you don't get, I mean Verlander like we thought Verlander was washed a couple years ago and he's so yep. not. Um, no, and just getting a pitcher of that caliber, getting a, a name like that with all that you know postseason experiences at on on August thirty first is just enormous. Um, mm-hmm. One last thing, and this is, I'm. I'm going to say up front, I'm aware of how weird this is going to sound, but part of like the the ace pitcher moving at the deadline is like changing the it's there's there are guys who who feel like they make more sense in a certain place. And I feel like a lot of it has to do with uniform color. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so this isn't weird. Like David, you know, David Price going, um, you know, going from the the Tigers to the Blue Jays sort of felt weird or Randy Johnson mm-hmm. going from the Mariners to the Astros and in 98 felt weird, but like Cole Hamels going from the Phillies to the Rangers felt normal because they're both red, white, and blue. And, uh-huh. you know, and Cliff Lee from the Indians to the Phillies in, um, in 2009 and Verlet, you know, it's the Astros home uniforms look a lot like the Tigers away uniforms. So we've seen yeah, Verlander in, thinking exactly the same in thing. that dark I saw, blue and orange. Yeah. Right. I saw a ton of tweets and posts like with the first pictures of Verlander in an Astros uniform like with people saying like, this looks so wrong. No, this looks so weird. And I was thinking, yeah. yeah, I was thinking this looks a lot like it always looked. Yeah. So I completely agree. Maybe. If, yeah. Uh, John Lester going from the Red Sox to the A's that like mm. you can't get more different than that in baseball so I'm glad you came with me on that that was, yeah, I was going out on one so. there I am right there so we're going to talk in just a few minutes to Tony Blangino the longtime scout slash executive slash writer we're going to ask him for his thoughts on the Yankees Red Sox smartwatch scandal but Any preliminary thoughts that you want to get out there before you do? I know you wrote about it for the site. We'll share some of our opinions as we talk to Tony, but do you want to set it up? I mean, I think by this point, I think everyone is well aware of what happened. But if you want to offer any opinions before we get to our guest. There are times when I don't find baseball itself as interesting as like the ephemera. And uh-huh. this is this is one of those ephemeral things that I find way more interesting than the um, than the game. And um, yeah, I, it actually it just so happened on Saturday. I was talking to um, a couple writers, one of whom at the Astros game, one one of whom played uh, uh, 
played college baseball. He was a pitcher and he was talking to, and like we had this actually came up, you know, what when his his team, he said, hadn't changed its signs in 15 years. And so everybody in the conference knew what their signs were and they just didn't do anything about it. So he was very much of the opinion, as am I, that if you get your sign stolen and you don't notice it and you don't do anything about it, like it's kind of your fault. And I think that's Mm -hmm. mitigated a little bit by the fact that the Red Sox did something, you know, that's generally outside the norms of baseball. But like you got to. You know, this is this is war, man. You got to, you know, counterintelligence is a big part of of, uh, you know, managing an effective baseball campaign. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, but apart from that, like it's I I'm generally pro cheating like, <laughs> you know, like I'm not saying, you know, shoot yourself up full of horse steroids or anything like that. But like this is this is awesome. I love that teams do this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am pro maximizing whatever advantage you can get. And if you go outside the rules and you get caught, then you have to suffer for it in some way. But I think, you know, this was this was beyond the pale a little bit just in the fact that outside. they were you using... Know, I'm not saying they shouldn't get, get punished, sure, but, I, you know, I'd right. certainly rather teams... Uh, you know, use binoculars, video to steal signs, then try to gain those marginal advantages by like service time manipulation or or uh-huh. signing bonus games or things that have like actual real world consequences. This is this is you know the only people who got hurt here are the Yankees, so that's pretty much a, a victimless crime. Um, <laughs> right, that's the the thing about this story. I think it's something that everyone can enjoy because it involves the two teams that people hate the most, most people, granted, maybe the most people like them also, but these are the two most hated teams in baseball by people who are not fans of those Mm -hmm. two teams. And neither of them looks, neither of them comes out of this looking perfect because there are accusations flying in both sides. I mean, it's just a fun, juicy story in terms of on-field impact, I think it's probably pretty minimal. We'll talk to Tony about that. Yeah. We'll also talk to Tony about whether the rule that the Red Sox broke even makes sense as a rule anymore. But I think this is just something you can enjoy. I mean, it's gamesmanship. It's teams like snitching on other teams in a heated rivalry in a pennant race. The history between these two teams, the almost pettiness of it's both so small and both these <laughs> both these franchises are so self-aggrandizing and it's just yeah petty is just it's it's <laughs> the perfect word for it the best part i think is that they're schadenfreude not only from the yankees getting suckered but from the red sox getting caught and mm-hmm. i this is i mean it's it's even beyond like the um like the cardinals hacking scandal because i don't think you know there's yeah there I mean, you know there's cardinal schadenfreude in a way that Right. There, that was, you know, you the know. Astros aren't, I don't think, universally reviled the way the Yankees and no. Red Sox are. Um, no. And that was a, a more serious breach of privacy. Yeah, nobody's than, going to jail this over, over no. this Apple Watch. Um, no, it's <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a story that I, I think there's something for everyone. And obviously, some of the responses have been disproportionate. People calling for forfeits and, and that kind of thing. That's that's yeah. crazy. I think this is a baseball tradition. And no, the smartwatch isn't part of the baseball tradition. But the sign stealing certainly is. And as we'll talk to Tony about it, I'm not sure how much more effective this scheme was than than sign stealing even was because I mean it's hard to imagine it even working that well, one, right? Because yeah, one thing you, you have you have the the video person relaying word to the trainer who is on the bench talking via to smartwatch or, right. or Dustin Majority has get to the signal to the batter. That just all yeah. seems like like there's, there's a, what a like three two or three seconds here. I know. Yeah. And if you're if you're talking about like a sign between pitches, I mean, granted, there's a lot of time between pitches in 2017 baseball. But still, if you're having to get word from three different people now, maybe it's more like the signs were broken at some point, And then once the sign system was broken, you can then use that in the future. You don't have to get the communication from the video person on every single play. Maybe that is how it worked. But you know, I think it's really hard to establish to what degree, if any, the Red Sox benefited here. Although 
it's more the intent that they have to be punished for more so than the results. What we ought to do, we ought to try to do this offseason is get a retired player with no interest in ever working in baseball again to yeah. to tell us everything about sign stealing, because this is all I yes. want to talk about right now. Yes, I would very much like to know more about that. That'd be fun. It's tough because anyone who is still in the game in any capacity is not really willing to give anyone up as a sign stealer or give away the technique. So, yeah. so if, not if, easy if to find ex, someone to talk If you're an ex-major league player who feels like <laughs> yeah. being a snitch, you know. <laughs> yes. Ringermob at gmail.com. Betray well, the brotherhood. Yeah. Please. <laughs> All right. Shall we bring on Tony? Yeah. All right. We will be back with Tony Bongino after a quick break. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to tell you about House of Carbs, hosted by one of my best friends, Joe House. I've known him since 1988, and the entire time I've known him, he's been very, very hungry. And now he has a chance to host a podcast about being hungry, all the things that make him hungry, the food that he loves. It is a podcast by the hungry, for the hungry. And it's not your typical foofy food podcast where they're talking about foie gras and all that stuff. No, no. We're talking about diners. We're talking about fried chicken sandwiches, pizza slices, best Chinese food. Everything you, everything you talk about with food is on this podcast and with great guests like David Chang, uh, Chris Bianco, Jimmy Kimmel, bunch of people coming up. All of them love food. Nobody loves food quite as much as Joe House. But listen, check this out. Subscribe right now to House of Carbs, wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So we are joined now by Tony Bongino, who has worked at a lot of levels of baseball. He has been a scout for the Brewers. He has worked in the front office for the Seattle Mariners as a special assistant to the GM. For the past few years, he's been a writer for Fangraphs, and he joins us now. Hello, Tony. Hey, Ben. Hello. Uh, hello, Michael. How's it going? It's going well. So I am curious about your initial reaction to this Yankees-Red Sox smartwatch story, because as we've mentioned, you've been in the game in some capacity for quite a while. You, are, I'm sure, are talking regularly to people who are in the game did any aspect of this story surprise you? Was there anything that made you sit up and say, wow, I, I can't believe a team was doing that? Or was all of this very much, yeah, I sort of would have expected this? Well, I, I guess the exact format in which it was happening maybe surprised me a little bit. But the concept of trying to get an edge, um, you know, there's a line. And this probably crosses it. Uh, but you know, there is a line and people are always treading up to it all the time. Everybody's looking for an edge any way you can. Sometimes they're obviously legal and ethical and sometimes they're obviously not. It's in point the, you know, the Cardinal Astro tampering situation, but there's a whole lot of gray area and this fits into it somewhere though. I, I do have to admit, I, I, I do believe that the specific actions are wrong and there needs to be some following up on it by MLB. So where is that line for you? Is it where MLB sort of sets that line where if you're using anything other than your eyes, then that's bad or, you know, or do you have another take on it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you have to take a step back and look at a, a broad panorama of things going down to the electronic strike zone, et cetera. Um, it, as well as, as, you know, other issues involving technology. MLB, I think is always due to the, I guess the people running the sport as well as the nature of baseball itself as a very old game with a long tradition, it's always going to be a little bit slower to change than the other, than some other sports. Um, but you know, I do believe there has been a good, um, fresh look at incorporating technology into the game. Obviously the use of replay is a, was a big step for baseball and a huge positive. I mean, you look at all the plays in history that were clear miscarriages of justice due to the so-called human element that it would, sure would have been nice if they would have gotten them right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the, the Royals Cardinals World Series in 85. Uh, you look at Armando Galarraga's perfect game, just to use a couple of examples. Um, those things don't happen anymore. That's a great step. Where do we go from here? Do we go to an electronic strike zone? Uh, you know, I kind of think it's easier said than done. Um, and not just because of the human element. This isn't like tennis where you've just got 
a ball landing in or out. It's a three-dimensional strike zone. Um, I do think eventually it will happen, but you have to get to a point where it's almost flawless and almost foolproof, and the players aren't going to rebel against it to a significant extent. I think we'll get there, but baseball is going to take a little while longer to get there. As far as this specific instance here, sign stealing has been going on forever. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just being different modus operandi are being used now. And I do think, you know, at least what I know about with the whole Red Sox situation, that's probably not the way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you don't want to get punished, but there are other ways probably just short of that that probably would fall on the other side of the gray area. Right. So we know that this was against the rules. It it seems to have been. And so if you break the rules, you deserve some form of punishment. I think some of the calls for forfeiting games and even draft picks, that seems extreme and very unlikely. But, you know, presumably there will be some sort of fine, some slap on the wrist that sends the message that the league is not okay with this. But Do you think that the rules as currently written make sense? Is there a point in preserving a distinction between having an electronic device in the dugout? You can have an iPad as long as it's not connected to the Internet or communicating with some other device. I mean, is there a point to that? Because you know that other teams, if they're not doing exactly what the Red Sox did here, they've got to be doing something similar, whether it's having a phone or a TV just outside of the dugout or having the video person in the clubhouse, you know, call down the tunnel or send someone running back and forth. I mean, it's not as if there's no way to communicate here. It's just that this was a way that seemed to be prohibited by the rules, but do we need those rules? Well, let's again, let's take a look at football, which has had its share of issues in, in this realm, mm-hmm. uh, going back to Belichick with the practices and all that with the Patriots, uh, they've got plenty of technology on the sidelines. They've got right. entire coaching staffs up in the, in the booths on, on the headset with the players and with the, with the head coach on the sidelines. And they have access to every type of data possible. Why can't baseball have a, an arrangement more like that? Mm-hmm. Um, where you, you've got, you know, who knows, uh, you know, a connection to the, to, to some, you know, trove of information and, and on the, uh, you know, each, each club's, you know, computer system, you know, one club's at home, so they've got a little better access, but you regulate it in some way. So you equalize the access to information among the two clubs, but why shouldn't those detailed uh, scouting reports and histories on players be available in real time game situations? I think where you draw, where you draw the line is something, again, going back to the football situation. If you're filming the other club's practice or allegedly filming the other, other club's proprietary practice time or something akin to that, I think you've crossed that line. But each club has developed, in this day and age, a, trove of, a treasure trove of information. Why shouldn't they have access to it in a, real, in a real-time situation? The key is, how do you... I mean, it's a split-second game. I mean, you're standing there in the batter's box and you got a guy throwing 98 with a power slider, Mm -hmm. but maybe the last thing you need is additional information. The key is being able to take what you've got and make it usable in a game situation. And I wonder about, you know, players want just massively varying amounts of information in terms of advanced scouting reports even. Um, You know, is there a difference between... Maybe not with the role of technology in general in the dugout, but in sign stealing is, you know, are, is there a split between what front office people in general think versus coaches versus players, or do all three groups of, of people, you know, have individuals who sort of run the gamut from don't even try to, yeah, we should have the NSA set up something, but you know, behind the center field wall to, you know, put the, the signs in the, in the batter's ear or something like that. Well, I, I think there's been a very significant evolution in the way organizations operate in the last generation in baseball, obviously, with the analytical revolution. And you now have the front office dictating a lot more than they used to. And dictating may be too strong a word, but setting a tone or you know, setting an organizational philosophy. However, there are certain areas of expertise where you have to defer to the field personnel. 
And, you know, there still are some organizations who have a very powerful field manager who kind of, you know, is on, on equal footing or perhaps even higher footing than the general manager. I think about the Orioles. I think about, you know, how the angels seem to operate at times, uh, Potentially, you know, the Cubs, Joe Madden is a, you know, probably a peer relationship with Theo Epstein. Um, but on these field first situations, I think you have to listen to what your manager and your coaching staff have to say, and they have to listen to what the players have to say. The last person who's going to be able to initiate a sign stealing endeavor is somebody who's not on the field, you know, 24-7, 162 games. That's got to come from the field. And if they think, obviously you're looking for a, you're looking for a tell from a pitcher. You're looking for a tell giving signs from a catcher. If it's there, you got to use it uh, because the other guys are going to use it. If you're reviewing a video, a video on a player and, and you see him tipping, see a pitcher tipping his pitches, you're going to act on it. Um, but the, the front office shouldn't go trying to create something when it isn't there. Listen to your front office. I mean, listen to your field personnel. And if there's an advantage to be had within, within the rules, within the intent of the rules, you have to go for it. What do you think would change if Major League Baseball said, okay, anything goes, you can use these devices in the dugout and you can whatever, look at Facebook during the game if you want. You can instant message with your GM during the game or your stat head up in the front office, whatever it is, no restrictions. What do you think would change? Cause Baseball is a little different from football, from basketball, in that maybe there's a little less X and O stuff from game to game. You're not responding to specific plays and formation so much. You're kind of just rolling out your batting order and your starter and the chips fall where they may. So maybe there's not as much potential to do stuff in game. And as it is, you're allowed to have a huge wealth of information with you, whether it's in a binder of some sort. When I was an intern for the Yankees, I used to help out building the giant binders that Joe Girardi would have. And who knows whether he or the coaches actually looked at them or consulted them. But if they wanted to, there was just a ton of stuff in there about matchups and trends and team tendencies. It's all there. You just can't get it in real time, essentially. So do you think anything would be different if there were that direct real-time line? Well, the challenge would remain the same. And the challenge is everybody has reams and reams and reams of information, but 98% of it doesn't do you any good in a given scenario. It's being able to access that actionable piece of information in a hair trigger reaction time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess maybe one thing that could, could come of this is you could have a, like a new type of ex player coach, type of uh, presence that could evolve, mm -hmm. you know, that guy who, you know, just retired from the game and he's got the real feel for what's going on on the field, but, and he also has a pretty good idea of the, the data that the um, he's educated in, in, in all the data that the club, the club uses. Maybe you could have a, an extra coach who's just come off of the field and really knows, can make that link, can make that connection. Uh, in that, in that, you know, reaction time that is necessary to have an impact on a game, but I, I, it'll, it'll come down to all the clubs will have the information, but the ones who know how to get it into, you know, actionable form in, in, in record time are the ones who are going to have the advantage over the others. So one thing that I've been interested in after the Yankees code got broken. That's kind of their fault. Like, you know, there are codes with you think of card games and board games. You play with a um, with a partner and you have you have to develop some sort of code and developing an impenetrable code is part of part of those games. And I always sort of viewed baseball the same way. So who's in charge of coming up with the signs and how how frequently do they get changed? Oh, they get changed all the time. I mean, it's there, there are. Good. I mean, I, you know, compared to a generation ago, I don't know how many good sign stealers there still are out there, but there tends to be a player or two in every team who's really, really good at it. And catchers have to be able to change them on the fly. So it's a constant ebb and flow of, you know, clubs making subtle changes to the way they do things. Um, and the tech, the technology just adds another layer to that. I mean, the, you go back to the 1951, the Bobby Thompson home run was on a stolen sign. 
I mean, that was Bill Rigney's role on the 1951 team, a sign stealer. You said there's one or two guys. Is there a, a specific person who who comes to mind in the, in the game today? Because, I mean, the, the 51 Giants, Willie Mays was a legendary sign stealer, too. Is there anybody like that that, that uh, you could think of off the top of your head right now? I probably wouldn't want to drop any names out. That's kind of a... That's probably kind of something I'd be. They wouldn't be. People wouldn't be too happy with me sharing that information. <laughs> they they revel in their uh, inside game. Yeah, and I would figure that if anything, teams are being even more vigilant about changing those things up, just because we do have HD cameras on everything. And even if you're not breaking the rules, there are ways to stay within the rules and still see more of this stuff and perhaps crack the code code more quickly than you might have been able to in the past when you were solely relying on what players could see during the game. Back in, again, go back to 1951, I, I doubt 18-year-old Willie Mays was, was doing too much sign stealing back then. He's probably learning from the Masters. But back then, you saw seven teams in the course of a regular season. You played 22 games against seven other clubs. And nowadays, you know, you're seeing everybody a lot less often uh, you have a lot more player churn in terms of injuries and ups and downs from the minor leagues, disabled list, manipulation, et cetera. So you've got a whole new cast of characters that you have to get the book on that much more quickly. Now, that said, a lot of these guys are fringe major leaguers. And, you know, you just sit there and you wait for them to make a mistake, um, which is happens a lot less often than it does with the you know, the grizzled veterans who've been out there, but you've got a lot more players to get to learn all the time. Just the volume of information is daunting. Mm -hmm. Complete speculation, but would you guess that there is an actual edge to be gained here? I mean, it's hard to detect any edge or prove any edge, of course. And maybe if every team is doing some form of this, it's less about gaining an edge than keeping up with everyone else. But if you could run some kind of controlled experiment where every team stole signs except one team that just, you know, didn't do it for a whole season. Do you think that there would actually be any perceptible difference there? Or do you think that because it's baseball and just the nature of the sport and just the quick twitch reactions and, and everything that maybe it, it doesn't amount to that big a difference anyway? Well, I think it would be a small difference, but in a, in a game where inches and tenths of a second make a difference, if you get the, if you get one call and it's in the right spot, it's it, it's a game changer and it's a season changer. Mm -hmm. um, so you, again, you're you're looking in every aspect, on the field and off, you're looking to get an edge within the rules. And if you can get it, you don't know which edge you're going to get. Is it a rule five pick? Is it a um, waiver claim? Or is it, you know? catching somebody in a weak moment on the field where they, where they tip a pitch or, or tip what the club's going to do next. I mean, there's a fine line between stealing a sign and somebody showing a squeeze bunt one hundredth of a second too early. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all, but they're all the same. They're all getting an edge. They're all, you know, finding that. Yeah, I remember extra 2%. Wasn't that Jonah Carey's book title back in the day? Yep. Um, you're, looking, you're looking for that edge. And this is just another aspect of it. And one thing that strikes me as interesting when you're maybe not with sign stealing because the signs change so much, but um, it maybe more with advanced scouting is the decision of when to try to press that advantage. Because you, if you, you know, if, if you start acting on something like, you know, I think about the, we had Alex Umwald, who's a, a Royals advanced scout on the pod last year. And he talked about that wild card game where they realized that John Lester never threw over to first. And that seems like an obvious place to capitalize on one of those informational advantages. But if you, you know, if you start running on John Lester in a game in August, then you give away that advantage. You know, you let them know that something's up and maybe you can't use it later. So it, you know, what is that decision-making process like when you get a really good piece of maybe not sign stealing, but maybe a really good uh, bit from your advanced scouts and you're, you're trying to figure out when is the best time to, to use it? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a couple different, you know, advanced scouting probably has a couple different forms, you know, in the regular season, it's, it's so much more, so much more uh, video based now and so much more electronic based and, and some clubs don't even employ 
you know, quote unquote, advanced scouts anymore, you know, human beings who do that during the regular season. So during the regular season, these clubs are just, they're looking for edges. They're, 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 you know, educating their, their um, manager and coaching staffs, and they're going to use that information on the go on the fly, um, you know, in game situations, but you get towards the end of the year, you're going to get some of your, your clubs, you're in a playoff race. You're going to put some of your guys on the road as traditional advanced scouts. And that's when they're looking for those little tells. They're looking for those little, you know, overshift decisions. You know, where is in this situation, where, you know, where are they going to deploy their infielders? You know, they do anything funky in the outfield with shifts out there. You're looking for that kind of stuff with human beings. Sometimes you throw volume at them. You throw a couple of advanced scouts and put them in different parts of the park. And sometimes not even let them know each other's there. Um, just so you can have fresh sets of eyes on potential playoff opponents. So you can find little quirks that you can then use at that magic moment in the game. And that's more like, you know, what you were, the example you were using where you you save that nugget for, for a key moment. But that's the kind of stuff you're going to get from a human being out in the field doing advanced scouting worth rather than video um, where you're, where you're going to get the mechanical flaws you know, Aaron Judge is flying his front side open. You know, he back early in the season, he was keeping back, and now you can exploit him in certain different parts of the, of the plate. You know, that's the kind of stuff you use constantly um, until he makes an adjustment and you have to adjust back. But those little nuggets, you're going to get them from your, from your human beings with the wealth of experience out on the field late in the season. And all of a sudden, you hear those stories popping out after a team wins about the something the advanced scout found in a meaningless game in September 20th. And there was a report by Evan Drellick that the Red Sox think that the Yankees are going out of their way to harass them. It's there's some kind of, you know, pattern of gamesmanship going on here. And I'm kind of with Michael, if they can do that and if they can actually get in the Red Sox heads in some way, well, more power to them. They're only separated by a few games in this important division race. So any edge you can get good for you. But do you think that sort of gamesmanship or enmity between teams or organizations is still around in any meaningful way today? Because the the game has changed in a number of ways, maybe that make that less likely and that you have this turnover on rosters constantly. You have guys going from one team to another. Of course, the Red Sox have Chris Young, who was very recently a Yankee. So it's a little hard to think of an opponent as an abstract enemy or other when you know that you were just recently wearing that uniform or might be wearing that uniform the next year. And, you know, you don't see the same teams as many times in a season as you just mentioned. And all these guys, there's kind of a fraternity of ballplayers in a way that maybe there wasn't always in the past. So do you think that kind of thing is still around? I mean, when you were working for teams, were there grudges that you would hold against other teams? And does that extend from the front office to the field level? Well, I mean, all those things that you say about the modern game, all these trends are true. Um, But when you go into Fenway Park or Yankee Stadium, when the Red Sox or Yankees are playing, it's different. And you can say that about a few other matchups in the game. And that doesn't mean there's not friendships and there's not camaraderie between members of the organizations on the field and off. But there's a level of com- competition that is palpable um, when you get into those situations. And, you know, I can think, and I can think back, you know, not to the same extent, but sure, there are organizations both in Seattle and in Milwaukee where, you know, maybe there's, a, there's an ex-employee of one organization uh, in another organization who's taken some employees over to the other organization with them. And there's a little healthy rivalry that takes place. And sometimes in the heat of battle, it boils over a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens in any sport. But if you're going to, you know, talk about, you know, the best rivalries in the history of, te- of American team sports, Yankees Red Sox is, is in the discussion for number one. Mm-hmm. And it's been quiet for a few years now. So it's, you know, in a sense, it's healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, somewhat unrelated question to wrap up, but you were just alluding to it in one of your responses. A couple of weeks ago, it became a story when the Astros dismissed eight scouts and there was a lot of fretting about the future of scouting. And I don't know whether that particular personnel decision on the Astros part is emblematic of 
any larger trend. I don't know the specifics, why exactly those cuts were dismissed or how those resources will be reallocated. But do you think that there is any danger? Should scouts be worried about the future of that tradition? Just because, you know, you're a good person to ask. You have been a scout. You have also worked with the technology that has essentially replaced some of the maybe more rote aspects of scouting, just the pure data collection, how hard is this guy throwing, that sort of thing. We now have StatCast and other technologies that are recording that for us. So does that mean that scouts are endangered? Because, of course, that is something that people were worried about when the sabermetric movement really took off 15 years or so ago. And we know that teams employ more scouts today than they did at that time. Well, the evaluation methods of player evaluation are changing as they always have been. Mm -hmm. There is still plenty of room for a good scout. The amateur draft, you need good scouts. They make a difference. It's not just going out and getting the numbers on the players and the raw measurables. You got to know the player, everything about them. Um, especially with high school players. And if you abandon high school players as a, at the high schools as a source of talent, you do, do so at your own peril. To me, that was the funniest, unintentionally funny part of Moneyball was the chapter they wrote pretty much trashing our draft pick of Prince Fielder. Mm-hmm. And he's a pretty good draft pick. Yeah. So scouting is very, very important. Now for an individual scout, yeah, it's a time of change. You're going to have to become analytically, not necessarily savvy, but you have to be be able to speak the language of analytics to to remain in good stead in in a scouting position because clubs are looking for multitaskers. They're looking for people who can tell their, their eyes tell them something and they can translate it into numbers or the numbers are telling something and they can translate it into something you can see with your eyes. They, they don't want two people to do that. They want one person to be able to do both of those things. So again, the, and the advanced scouting, like I said, there's always a place for that, that, the, that set of eyes that can pick up something that the data sheet can't tell you or that the stat cast template can't tell you. So there's a place, but it's changing. And just like in any other industry where there's change, there are some people who aren't going to adjust and they're going to perish. And there are people who are going to adjust and they're going to thrive. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Tony, I know that you may soon be covering yourself with the veil of secrecy that uh, is laid over every major league team as you try to return back to baseball. But we're glad that we could have you on to talk before then. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Enjoyed it very much. I'll talk to you guys down the road. All right. That will do it for this episode. You have been listening to The Ringer MLB Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network. As always, we will return with another episode on Monday. Until then, disguise your signs and beware of watches. Watches.